Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul. Lolita, the tip of the tongue taking a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth. Lolita. She was low, plain low in the morning, standing four feet ten in one sock. She was Lola in slacks. She was Dolly at school. She was Dolores on the dotted line. But in my arms, she was always Lolita. With an introduction like that, I fear you expected some little girl in knee socks. Instead, I'm David Remnick from The New Yorker magazine, and I'm proud to say that The New Yorker was for a very long time the happiest of homes for Vladimir Nabokov. I'm also proud to say that the magazine is a co-conspirator in this centenary celebration with Penn, especially Penn's Forums Committee, chaired by Brad Morrow. So thank you to Penn, and thank you as well to Dmitry Nabokov, to Vintage Books, Gregory Mosher, Michael Roberts, Kristen Eliasberg, and Rhonda Sherman for doing their bit in putting tonight together. Needless to say, in the communist era of state censorship, Lolita was considered as dangerous to one part of the Soviet brain as the Gulag archipelago was to another. Listen to James Mason recite the lilting opening lines of the ecstatic and perverse poem that is Lolita. Those lines alone would have been enough to melt the resolve of Leonid Brezhnev and the Politburo had they been allowed. I used to live in Moscow and remember meeting a key figure in the first official publication of the book in the Soviet Union. His name was Igor Kohn. And by giving testimony in favor of Lolita at a 1987 obscenity trial in Moscow, Kohn helped to push the novel past the remaining barriers of the state and into the hands of Russian readers. It may be coincidental that Igor Kohn was also the only living sexologist in the Soviet Union at the time. <laughs> I don't know. I do know that Nabokov would have enjoyed that historical footnote, though the two men surely would have argued over Kohn's allegiance to another writer and thinker, the bearded physician Nabokov referred to always as that Viennese quack. By the late 80s, Moscow intellectuals, at least those in dissident or semi-dissident circles, had already read Lolita in pirated versions, sometimes in English, more often in Nabokov's own Russian translation. Older literary figures like Nadezhda Mandelstam found Lolita too hot to handle, and they often preferred Nabokov's earlier novels like Dar, The Gift, and yet many younger readers discovered that while Nabokov was in exile from Russian soil and the pleasures of his Russian childhood, the ecstasy never left his Russian language. They discovered that Nabokov translated himself from Russian into English with the same sense of oral attention and meaning that you heard in James Mason's reading. It was as if he had written in two languages at once. In an interview on Channel 13 with Robert Hughes 34 years ago, these were the days before the three tenors and the wisdom of Deepak Chopra became the height of state-subsidized wisdom. <laughs> Nabokov said this of his heroine's name. Note that for the necessary effect of dreamy tenderness, 
both L's and the T, and indeed the whole world should be Iberized, that means Spanishized in Nabokovian English, and not pronounce the American way with crushed L's, a coarse T, and a long O. Lalita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul. And then Nabokov asked Hughes and his viewers to listen to the Russian. Here, he said, the first syllable of her name sounds more like an ah sound than an o sound, but the rest is like Spanish. Lalita, svet maye zizni, agon maich kreso, grech moy, dusha maya. Prose with the attention of verse. In Updike's famous line, Nabokov writes prose the only way it should be written, that is, ecstatically. In Moscow, everyone noticed, not the sex so much, not the sensationalism, but the sound. It was one of the great pleasures of the perestroika era to discover that those ordinary, yet language-mad Russians who had not had access to underground manuscripts were now falling in love with Nabokov, with Lalita, with Pnin, with Pale Fire, books that seemed to them a treasure of Russian as surely as they are of English. There are certain symmetries to this evening, and I believe Nabokov would have enjoyed them. The first is that while it is the centenary of Nabokov, he was born in 1899 in St. Petersburg, it is also the bicentennial of his literary idol, the idol of nearly all Russian readers, Alexander Pushkin. Nabokov always believed that his legacy would be Lolita, and his multi-volume annotated translation of Yevgeny Onegin. No literary artist of our time has devoted himself more deeply to scholarship on another writer as Nabokov devoted himself to Pushkin. No matter what the flaws and eccentricities, Nabokov's work on Onegin is remarkable, not least because he spent four years to accomplish it, four years that came at the very height of his literary powers in the period of Lolita, and eventually pale fire. Another symmetry is that the last time we gathered here at Town Hall was for an occasion known as Kafka Night. Only in New York, my friends. <laughs> Nabokov, as you know, was an acute reader and teacher of Kafka. And in lecturing on the metamorphosis, Nabokov came as near as he ever would to defining his own art. We can take this story apart, he told his students at Cornell. We can find out how the bits fit, how one part of the pattern responds to the other. But you have to have in you some cell, some gene, some germ that will vibrate in answer to sensations that you can neither define nor dismiss. Beauty plus pity. That is the closest we can get to a definition of art. Where there is beauty, there is pity. For the simple reason that beauty must die, Beauty always dies. The manner dies with the matter. The world dies with the individual. For so long, this spirit, the spirit of Nabokov, of individualism, of liberalism in the deepest sense, was the missing spirit of the country he had been forced to abandon as a child. It is also precisely what he found in his American exile. In Lolita, the fictive Humbert did not reflect his author as a sexual being the crudest mistake of the censorious reviewers. But he did reflect his author's passion for the newfound land, this particular place of exile. In America, Nabokov rejoiced not merely in the principles and the pieties, but in the poem that is formed from a list of schoolchildren's names, 
in the films of Laurel and Hardy, in the twang of a Midwestern vowel. Another point of Kafka-Nabokov intersection is a matter of fate. Had Kafka lived through his illnesses and remained alive a little longer, he would have ended up, as his sisters did, in a camp. Had Nabokov's father, a prominent liberal politician, not led his family west out of revolutionary Russia, his son, the writer, would likely have ended up in a camp as well. Kafka by fire, Nabokov by ice. As it happens, we've gathered tonight to celebrate a lucky man, lucky in his exile in languages, lucky in what he called his unclouded family life, lucky in the fulfillment of his ambitions. One of the sweetest opinions Nabokov offers in his compendium, Strong Opinions, is his opinion of his own rich survival. My life thus far has surpassed splendidly the ambitions of boyhood and youth, he said late in life. In the first decade of our dwindling century, during trips with my family to Western Europe, I imagined in bedtime reveries what it would be like to become an exile who longed for a remote, sad, and unquenchable Russia under the eucalypti of exotic resorts. Lenin and his police nicely arranged the realization of this fantasy. At the age of 12, my fondest dream was a visit to the Karakum Range in search of butterflies. And at 15, I visualized myself as a world-famous author of 70 with a mane of white, wavy hair. Today, I am practically bald. <laughs> Even in the last year of his life, Nabokov said that he was not yet through milking my brain but his achievement was enormous and deep. He had added immeasurably to English and to Russian literature. He proved himself worthy of the poet he had translated. He made us, in Humbert's term, tremble and throb. He was our entertainer, our riddler, our teacher. If Nabokov missed perfection at all, it was only, as he said, by the hair on his head. Thank you. Good evening. Translators don't normally get to talk very much in public about their work. They are the ghosts of the literary profession, invisible men who put on a mask for a while and pretend to be somebody else. It's a peculiar occupation, especially when the mask you're wearing happens to belong to someone who is as alive as Nabokov was when we worked together. I'm often asked how it was that Apart from Dmitri, I came to be Nabokov's only translator uh, into English. Just a moment. Michael Glennie did a novel late, much later on. Well, it was, as these things often are, through a series of accidents. I was a graduate student at Columbia at the time, studying Russian literature. I'd found a room with an elderly Russian emigre lady called Anna Fagin on 104th Street. Uh, we used to see each other rarely. I told her that I was translating my first book from Russian, a Soviet novel called Cities and Years. And a couple of months later, Anna asked me to dinner. It was a unique invitation. We usually kept very much apart from one another. But of course I accepted, and I went into Anna's parlor 
one evening in that February and was solemnly introduced to Mr. and Mrs. Nabokov and their son, Dmitri. It turned out that Anna Fagin was Vera's cousin. In fact, they had lived in the same apartment in Berlin before Vera's marriage to Nabokov. Anna had been something like an elder sister to Vera, and much later, when Anna was stranded in France, it was Vera and Vladimir who had brought her to this country. I wish I could say that I remember that dinner vividly, but unfortunately, it's not true. Uh, actually, almost my chief memory is of Dmitri, who was about my age, and calling himself from a deep armchair and towering over me uh, by about nine inches. Not quite so tall was an Edwardian-looking gentleman with a plummy accent and a slight lisp who introduced himself as Vladimir. And of course, there was the incomparable Vera, impeccably dressed, I seem to remember, in black, with a head of improbably white and improbably perfectly coiffed hair. The Nabokovs were on their way back from Europe and to Hollywood, where Vladimir was about to tackle the script of Lolita for Stanley Kramer. About a month later, Anna asked me if I would give her a translation of mine to show to Nabokov. It was Chekhov, which is only relevant because of a, an absurd exchange we got into a little later. Vera wrote back to say that they had no way of checking the Chekhov, but would I translate three pages from a novel called The Gift, which I had not then read, from chapter four, which she assured me was much more difficult than Chekhov. <laughs> she couldn't have been more right. Uh, and it did take me some time to uh, get around to these uh, three pages. In due course, I sent the three pages to Hollywood. Vera wrote back that her husband found them, quote, absolutely wonderful. And in fact, they survive in more or less their original form in the printed copy of The Gift Today. For a variety of complicated reasons, I went to Montana and then to California that summer. One of the reasons being that I was infatuated with the beatniks and thought that that was where I was going to find them. <laughs> it's rather ironic that I should have been hanging around the City Lights bookstore uh, when, on the other hand, I was in negotiations with the Mandarin of American prose, Nabokov, to translate some of his works. Uh, in the course of the next couple of months, there was a complicated uh, correspondence. Uh, Dimitri was supposed to translate the gift, but then he was accepted by the opera school in La Scala in Milan and couldn't do it. I was asked to do the rest, then I was asked to do the defense, then I was asked to do the gift again. Now, the curious thing is that I was a very reluctant debutante at this point. I had my Soviet book, Cities and Years, to finish. I had PhD orals ahead. And also, it's worth remembering, and uh, you have to be my age to do this, that Nabokov was not then the iconic figure and the literary colossus that we are celebrating today. It's true that Lolita had had a huge success, but it was a succès de scandale, a matter of scandal. And apart from Lolita, the only thing that was known to a broad audience here was the novel Panin. 
There was still no pale fire, no ardor, no speak memory, and of course, none of the nine novels and innumerable short stories that he had already written in Russian. Vera sent outlines of a possible contract. The translation she wrote is to be exact, faithful, and complete. I took umbrage. If this was a legal document, how could anyone define faithful and exact? I wrote back, I would prefer to have these words either faithfully and exactly defined or else deleted. <laughs> Vera was fine with that, and we arranged for me to go to Los Angeles to meet them for a second time. I drove up to Mandeville Canyon Road off Sunset Boulevard. We had lunch on a pretty terrace with palm trees, hibiscus, and subtropical plants that I didn't recognize. We talked about Russian literature, my plans to write a dissertation on the structure of Anna Karenina, which Nabokov thoroughly approved of. It was six months before I was able to begin my translation. Uh, by this time, the Nabokovs had moved back to Europe, and I had got used to the idea that our collaboration would be at long distance, with both of us, as it turned out, traveling frequently. I was also getting used to the idea that Nabokov as the novelist Herbert Gold once said, never wrote letters. This is not entirely true, as we know from the correspondence with Edmund Wilson and others. And I, in fact, myself received three precious letters signed by Vladimir. But it's true that Vera was the usual conduit. Uh, you'll be hearing a bit more about her later this evening. And it was never quite clear which were her ideas and which were her husband's. And this as you will hear, was part of the problem. I sent off the first part of the translation in June 1961 with a long list of questions, one of which was British English or American English. I was, am English, so this was an important question. Uh, translation was something that uh, featured rather largely in our uh, correspondence, and I wrote that complete chaos reigns in your translation of Russian characters in chapter one, particularly in the Russian vowels. Again, this will become relevant a little later. Vera replied to the first question, American English, please, more or less neutral idiom. My husband does not mind if tram and streetcar appear on the same page, but the spelling must be consistent and American. I have to add here that when it came to the correction process, Vladimir changed many of my anglicisms to Americanisms, but also many of my Americanisms to anglicisms, <laughs> so that we ended up in complete uh, disarray. On translation, my husband does not agree with any of the accepted methods. He has evolved one of his own for his book on Pushkin, and she would send me a copy. Nabokov would assent to Koncheyev, but he absolutely insists, this is a response to something I had written, on Chekhov, with one H. He assures you that it does not matter that Chekhov sounds funny to an Englishman. Being much more nearly correct than the other varieties, it will gradually become accepted. <laughs> I replied, you say in your letter that it does not matter that Chekhov sounds funny to an Englishman, since other varieties sound even funnier to a Russian. Forgive me, but I was under the impression that this edition was intended for the English ear. Vera took this in good spirit. By mid-July, I had finished chapter three. By this time, I was in England. The Nabokovs were in Italy. By the end of July, chapter four was finished, 
and by late August, chapter five. Vera wrote to say that her husband was amazed at the speed with which you work. And I have to say that so was I, and I'm even more astonished looking back. For me, translating Nabokov was like a gigantic puzzle. It was a cerebral challenge that appealed to my competitive instincts. I also discovered that Nabokov, on the syntactical level, is surprisingly easy to translate. His Russian was saturated with echoes of French and English. His sentence structure was very Latinate, like Tolstoy's, but more so. And compared with Chekhov, that famous Chekhov, and with someone like Dostoevsky, whom I later translated, he wrote sentences that were not difficult to dismantle and reconstruct, at least on the grammatical level. And this speeded up the work immensely. It was on the lexical level that things got difficult, and the main thing was to surround myself with a mountain of dictionaries. And in fact, a great deal of my correspondence with him amounted to him saying, look in Webster page so-and-so-and-so, and me saying, don't forget the Oxford English Dictionary page so-and-so-and-so. Nabokov was too preoccupied with pale fire to get to the translation for quite a while. In fact, I felt rather miffed that I had hurried so much and then he wasn't able to deal with it until the very end of 1961. There were also some odd problems. There was one passage in uh, chapter two where Nabokov describes uh, the hero, Fyodor, working naively and clumsily on his early poetry. The passage was based on Nabokov's own experience and memories, of course, and I tried to emulate this process in English. I remembered that in my original sample pages, there had been three families called Kiparisov, Paradisov, and Zlatoruni. I had rendered these phonetically, whereupon Nabokov changed them to names derived from Cyprus, Paradise, and Golden Fleece. With that in mind, I went to work on Nabokov's rhymes. Crying, I wrote, immediately suggested lying and dying under sighing pines on a silent night. Waterfall always prompted my muse to recall some long-forgotten ball. Flowers called for hours about bowers which were ours. Chandeliers, cavaliers, grenadiers, and gondoliers suggested 19th century court functions, military splendor, and Venetian moonlight, and so on for about a page. I was quite proud of this. Nabokov amended it. Lietucci, flying, immediately grouped Tucci, clouds, over the Kruci, steeps, of the Zguce, burning desert, and of Nieminuce, inevitable fate, and so on and so forth. Anyone who has seen Nabokov's translation of Yevgeny Onyegin will recognize the technique and realize that it was surely more faithful to the original with regard to sense. I couldn't suppress a pang, however, over the loss of all the rhythm, sound, and wordplay. Well, there were problems with butterfly names, mushrooms. I devoted several days to translating two pages about a mushroom hunt, only to have them both crossed out completely by Nabokov as being superfluous to his needs. On the other hand, he was very kind and helpful on occasion. I remember him writing in the margin a list of English equivalents for various kinds of light. Glimmer, glow, gleam, shine, twinkle, sparkle, coruscate. And of course, these were very important words 
in his lexicon. Now, people often ask, why did Nabokov, the author of Panin, Lolita, Pale Fire, Speak Memory, and so on, even need a translator into English? I asked him myself when I visited him in Los Angeles and was given two reasons. First, he needed the time to go on writing original works in English. After all, he was already in his early 60s, and his American English career had really only just begun. The second reason was that he wanted to be spared the temptation of rewriting his early Russian books in his mature style. Both these things held true for the gift and somewhat less so for the defense. Uh, but it can be seen how much more he did when he came to novels, for instance, like King Queen Knave, Laughter in the Dark, or Despair. My own mission was to walk the tightrope of Nabokov's Russian prose and reproduce it as faithfully as possible in English. I was expressly forbidden to be creative or to interpret, for that was his prerogative, and Nabokov confirmed it in one of his letters to me in March 1962. Besides correcting direct mistakes, I have dealt with a number of inaccuracies. In a few cases, the changes are meant to simplify or clarify matters, or else they reflect my own predilections of style. I realize quite well that the odd turn of some of your sentences is owing to your desire to be faithful to every detail of the original, as I had asked you to be. And he concluded, the book is very hard to translate, and in many cases you have found clever and elegant solutions. Feeling that this was a, an emotional uh, softening or breakthrough, and also a letter from him, I took the opportunity to, to ask a quest, series of questions about other writers who I thought might have influenced him including the Russian formalists. And I asked him if he'd ever seen the collage that had been made by the French painter Jean Dubuffet out of butterfly wings. His response was succinct. James Joyce, I greatly admire Ulysses. Bialy, Petersburg is one of the three or four greatest novels of our time. I have never read The Good Soldier. Rob Grier, best French writer, never read his manifestos. Shklovsky, I seem to remember an essay of his on Onyegin. Never met him. What is termed formalism contains certain trends absolutely repulsive to me. <laughs> Collage of butterfly wings, a ridiculous mutilation. <laughs> Many months went by in revising the gift. Meanwhile, Vera had asked me to continue with the defense. And I wrote back saying that, yes, I would do it, but I had to reserve some time for writing my dissertation on Anna Karenina. Anna Karenin, please, wrote Vera, welcoming this news of my dissertation. She meant that Karenina in English is logically absurd because it's a feminine. But I dug in my heels. Of course you were right, strictly speaking, but when one has read the book and fallen in love with Anna before knowing the slightest thing about Russian names, it's too late and too difficult to change. Anna came into English literature and into my life as Karenina, and Karenina she will remain. Again, Vera maintained a diplomatic silence. The defense was much shorter and easier than the gift. The work went very well. I was spending that summer in Brooklyn, Maine, 
And then my wife and I took off on a vacation driving across Canada to visit the World's Fair in Seattle. I took the manuscript with me because the Nabokovs too were on vacation and I didn't know where they were. Once we reached Seattle, I got some letters from Vera and prepared to send off the rest of the translation. At this point, my relations with Vera and Vladimir were extremely cordial. We'd still not managed to meet to discuss translations in person. They had tried to see me on a flying visit to New York in June, but we had already left. We had discussed the prospect of me translating many more of Nabokov's novels, and I thought that I had a job for half a lifetime. Feeling extremely pleased with myself, I mailed the balance of the defense from a small town with the unlikely name of Walla Walla in the state of Washington, and added an innocent postscript that we were in Walla Walla waiting to watch a rodeo. Vera wrote back, it was nice to hear you have had so much fun from your trip to the West. I hope, though, that you hated the rodeo as much as we did. <laughs> All those blockheads on poor, deliberately tortured horses, those miserable calves, half-crazed with fright, almost as disgusting as the corrida. This to a man who had spent many months in Spain and fancied himself as expert as Hemingway on the subject of the corrida. I am sorry I wrote, I have to disagree with you about rodeos and corridas. It is clearly a question of where one draws the line, and I went on somewhat in this vein. I then had the temerity to suggest that perhaps it has something to do with the masculine temperament and sensibilities. There's supposed to be an element of sadism in most of us men, and I can certainly sense it in myself from time to time. For myself, and I say this utterly without rancor, I find it incomprehensible why butterflies should be stuck on pins. <laughs> I can't believe that I was writing this at the time, but this... <laughs> Vera wrote back, cruelty is probably the worst evil that exists and ever existed in the world, and in my opinion should be combated vigorously both within and without one's own personality and sadism is the worst form of cruelty. Yes, my husband is with me in this appraisal. By the way, you don't think, do you, that anyone in his right mind would be sticking pins into live butterflies? <laughs> I'm sorry if I sound didactic, but the way you reason, one would be justifying the Nazi extermination camps and Soviet Cheka next. Well, uh, this was a little too much for me, and uh, I went on to say that we would have to disagree, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I won't go on with that, but it gives you some sense of the flavor of this correspondence. And, of course, it was, I see now, the beginning of the end. <laughs> Vera was deeply upset by my outbursts, and so it seems was Nabokov. Vera wrote to Anna Fagan about it, who tried to defend me, pointing out that Vera was unjust that I was only 26 years old, not stupid, just naive, etc., etc. <laughs> Vera had expressed some doubt about my abilities as a translator, it seems. How on earth, wrote Anna, could he ever have known Russian well enough to satisfy Volodya's demands? But the damage was done. Um, I had other projects on. I moved back to England shortly afterwards. A baby was born, Vera sent a plaid cot blanket, which remains a treasured family possession. But once I returned to England, our relations came to a stop. 
I do, however, want to offer one brief postscript. In 1969, the novelist Herbert Gold published an article in the Saturday Evening Post writing about Nabokov's trickery, his reputation as a magician, and concluding that the name Michael Scammell had been invented by Nabokov <laughs> to conceal the fact of his own translation. <laughs> it was obviously an anagram. <laughs> Michel Le Masque. Well, it was too much to be deprived of my own personality uh, at this point. Uh, and it so happened that I had just finished translating an awful novel that I did, I have to confess, for the money, called A Thousand Illusions by a Soviet writer called Valery Tarsis. I wasn't happy to be associated with this novel, and since the title invited playfulness, I decided to name the translator Michel Lemasque. So the man in the mask had his own mask now. It was nice to think that the supreme master of masks and disguises was indirectly responsible for inventing not me, but for a wholly mythical translator of Tarsus. And the best thing was, he never knew it. Thank you. I think we're supposed to, to introduce ourselves. I'm Elizabeth Hardwick. <laughs> I thought I would speak briefly, I hope, um, tonight in, in remembering the great Nabokov in an unlikely setting. That is to remember him for some years teaching at Cornell University in upstate New York in a city named Ithaca. I had made a mistake and written down U Utica, <laughs> so that wouldn't work. Uh, there he is, drowsy afternoons in the seminar room, with, as his biographer tells us, as many as 400 students on some weekends, taking home 150 examination papers to read. Some of his lectures were published in a volume entitled Lectures on Literature. So I'll, I'll make uh, some remarks from those about what he said about various writers. One of the novels he chose for his class is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The mad pseudoscience of Dr. Jekyll appeals to Nabokov, and that's not surprising. And he says he likes the whiny taste of the novel and the appetizing tang of a chill morning in London. In the book, a great deal, a good deal at least, is made of the plan of Dr. Jekyll's house. Nabokov says, the plan of the house represents the back and front of Dr. Jekyll himself. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but. <laughs> but I, I find it quite delightful. <laughs> About Madame Bovary, he starts off with, let us go back to the time when Charles was still married to Eloise de Bouc. That's the way he begins his lecture. 
And then, uh, these are, are not necessarily in line, it, it, he says to the class, if you're in search of beautiful writing, and quotes, he says, note the long, fine sun rays through the chinks and the closed shutters. Also, he says, now I'm <coughs> again uh, quoting Nabokov, he says, also, this is to the class, I want to draw your attention to Flaubert's use of the word and, preceded by a semicolon. Give that some thought. <laughs> In another passage, he considers the tense of one, the gra grammatical tense, in one of M Emma Bovary's musings. The difference between, here's the quotation, this is a line in the translation of uh, Madame Bovary. The line is, she would find again in the same places the foxgloves and the wallflowers. Now Nabokov thinks that in the translation they were using, that translation read, she found again in the same places. He finds that's not acceptable. All right, so now, <clears throat> Another one of the novels is Jane Austen and Mansfield Park. He calls Jane Austen dimpled and pert. <laughs> A master of dimpled pertness. In the novel, when Fanny, the heroine, bemoans a plan to cut down an avenue of trees, Fanny in the book cries out, what a pity. Does it not make you think of Cowper? Ye fallen avenues, once more I mourn your fate unmerited. The indefatigable lecture, Nabokov, takes time out for a reading of Cowper's long, tedious poem called The Sofa. <laughs> On Proust, he says, notice the elaboration of the moonlight in Proust. The shadows that come out of the light like the drawers of a chest. That's not bad. <laughs> On Dickens, he says, let us look at the web and not the spider. This I take to be a warning against biographical interpretation. Throughout these lectures, Nabokov insists that a novel is a fairy tale. He insists upon that, I think, against the tendency to see fiction as a sociological study or a bit of psychohistory. Tendencies, I imagine, were running like a low fever in the student body, the English students. Since we're in the academy, I want to commend to my audience here the astonishing comic novel called Pale Fire. It's somewhat daunting, I admit that, but it's an incredible work of the imagination. It opens with a poem called Pale Fire, a poem of 1,000 lines in rhyme couplets. A mad professor, Charles Kinboat, has taken on a deranged attachment to the poem, which he means to explicate in his most outlandish way. The book, this book of Nabokov's called Pale Fire, is about the explication of this poem and also of Kinboat's pursuit of the author of the poem, a sort of stalking of the author and his wife. <clears throat> the book is a commentary on the poem. 
The first line of the actual poem is, I was the shadow of the wax-winged slain. Now here's Ken Bolt, the mad explicator. Ken Bolt goes on, his he opens his commentary about the wax-winged, and then suddenly he shifts to this, the robin. How hard I find it, how hard I find to fit the name robin to the suburban imposter, the gross fowl, with its untidy, dull red livery, and the revolting gusto it showed when consuming long, sad, passive worms. <laughs> I don't really know anything like this novel, the superb composition and fantastical work. Also, just at my last line, I want to remember, I want you to remember, or bring to your mind, Nabokov's brilliant book on Gogol. It's one of the grandest things ever written by one writer about another. Thank you. I'm Richard Ford. I really represent the great unwashed here tonight. I haven't written about Nabokov. I haven't written like Nabokov. I haven't made a study of his life. I haven't translated him, and I'm not related to him that I'm aware of. <laughs> I've just read him. You know, somebody has to be satisfied with just doing that. I, I read Lolita in the back seat of my grandparents' Buick. Uh, <laughs> It, it, it was moving, I will tell you that. Uh, we were taking uh, a trip to New York to see the Yankees in 1962. Lolita was published in 1958, and I had been told that it was a dirty book by my friends, and in some ways, of course, it is a dirty book. Uh, but it is also a great book to take a trip with. Lots of things for boy to think about. <laughs> Speak memory is Vladimir Nabokov's autobiography. It accounts for his life in an unchronological way from 1903, when he was four, until 1940, shortly before he left Europe and came to America. Uh, it is one of the most vivid, lyrical, insightful, truly thrilling literary experiences the 20th century has to offer, I think. Written principally in America in English in the 40s, but also partly in French in Paris Speak Memory was published in 1951 under the title Conclusive Evidence because the author wished it to represent, as he said, conclusive evidence of his having existed. <laughs> Later in 1960, having added considerable family data and after having translated the entirety into Russian, Nabokov republished the book in English in America as Speak Memory. This uh, reissue occasioned a wonderful remark uh, he said the re-Englishing of a Russian reversion of what had been an English retelling of Russian memories in the first place proved to be a diabolical task. But <laughs> some consolation was given me by the thought that such multiple metamorphosis familiar to butterflies had not been tried by any human before. <laughs> the passage of Speak Memory I'm going to read to you is the commencement of chapter five, which was actually the first essay uh, which became Speak Memory that he wrote, in this case in French, in Paris, 
1936. Then, when he wrote it, it was titled Mademoiselle O, and considers the Swiss governess who shared Nabokov's life from 1905, when he was six, until 1912. Its virtues, I think, are plain to notice and need no amplification by me. I have noticed that after I had bestowed on the characters of my novels some treasured item of my past, it would pine away in the artificial world where I had so abruptly placed it. Although it lingered on in my mind, its personal warmth, its retrospective appeal had gone, and presently it became more closely identified with my novel than with my former self, where it had seemed to be so safe from the intrusion of the artist. Houses have crumbled in my memory as soundlessly as they did in the mute films of yore, and the portrait of my old French governess, whom I once lent to a boy in one of my books, is fading fast now that it is engulfed in the description of a childhood entirely unrelated to my own. The man in me revolts against the fictionist, and here is my desperate attempt to save what is left of poor Mademoiselle. A large woman, a very stout woman. Mademoiselle rolled into our existence in December 1905 when I was six and my brother five. There she is. I see so plainly her abundant dark hair brushed up high and covertly graying. The three wrinkles of her austere forehead, her beetling brows, the steely eyes behind the black-rimmed pince-nez, that vestigial mustache, that blotchy complexion which in moments of wrath develops an additional flush in the region of the third and amplest chin so regally spread over <laughs> the frilled mountain of her blouse. And now she sits down, or rather, she tackles the job of sitting down. <laughs> the jelly of her jowl quaking her prodigious posterior with the three buttons on the side luring itself warily. Then, at the last second, she surrenders her bulk to the wicker armchair, which, out of sheer fright, bursts into a salvo of crackling. <laughs> that winter of 1905-1906, when Mademoiselle arrived from Switzerland, was the only one of my childhood that I spent in the country. It was a year of strikes, riots, and police-inspired massacres, and I suppose my father wished to keep his family away from the city in our quiet country place where his popularity with the peasants might mitigate, as he correctly surmised, the risks of unrest. It was also a particularly severe winter, producing as much snow as Mademoiselle might have expected to find in the hyperborean gloom of remote Muscovy. When she alighted at the little Seversky station from which she still had to travel half a dozen miles by sleigh to Vera, I was not there to greet her, but I do so now, as I try to imagine what she saw and felt at that last stage of her fabulous and ill-timed journey. Her Russian vocabulary consisted, I know, of one word, the same solitary word that years later she was to take back to Switzerland, this word which in her pronunciation may be phonetically rendered as Gidea, meant where? And that was a good deal. Uttered by her like the raucous cry of some lost bird, it accumulated such interrogatory force that it sufficed for all her needs. Gidea, Gidea, she would wail, not only to find out her whereabouts, but also to express supreme misery, the fact that she was a stranger, shipwrecked, penniless, ailing, in search of the blessed land where at last she would be understood. 
I can visualize her by proxy as she stands in the middle of the station platform where she has just alighted and vainly my ghostly envoi offers her an arm that she cannot see. There I was, abandoned by all, comme la comtesse Karenine, she later complained eloquently, if not quite correctly. The door of the waiting room opens with a shuddering whine so peculiar to nights of intense frost. A cloud of hot air rushes out, almost as profuse as the steam from the panting engine. And now our coachman Zahar takes over a burly man in sheepskin with the leather outside, his huge gloves protruding from his scarlet sash into which he has stuffed them. I hear the snow crunching under his boots while he busies himself with the luggage, the jingling harness, and then his own nose, which he eases by means of a dexterous tweak and shake of finger and thumb as he trudges back around the sleigh. Slowly, with grim misgivings, Mademoiselle as her helper calls her, climbs in, clutching at him in mortal fear, lest the sleigh move off before her vast form is securely encased. Finally, she settles down with a grunt and thrusts her fists into her skimpy plush muff and the juicy smack of their driver's lips, the two black horses, Zoika and Zinka, strain their quarters shift hooves, strain again, and then Mademoiselle gives a backward jerk of her torso as the heavy sleigh is wrenched out of its world of steel, fur, flesh, to enter a frictionless medium where it skims along a spectral road that it seems barely to touch. For one moment, thanks to the sudden radiance of a lone lamp where the station square ends, a grossly exaggerated shadow, also holding a muff, races beside the sleigh climbs a billow of snow and is gone, leaving Mademoiselle to be swallowed up by what she will later allude to with awe and gusto as le steppe. <laughs> there, in the limitless gloom, the changeable twinkle of remote village lights seems to her to be the yellow eyes of wolves. She is cold, she is frozen stiff, frozen to the center of her brain, she said, for she soars with the wildest hyperbole when not tagging after the most pedestrian dictum. Every now and then she looks back to make sure that a second sleigh bearing her trunk and hat box is following always at the same distance like those companionable phantoms of ships and polar waters where explorers have described. And let me not leave out the moon for Surely there must be a moon, the full, incredibly clear disk that goes so well with Russian lusty frosts. So there it comes, steering out of a flock of small dapple clouds where it tinges with a vague iridescence and as it sails higher, it glazes the runner tracks left on the road where every sparkling lump of snow is emphasized by a swollen shadow. Very lovely, very lonesome. But what am I doing in this stereoscopic dreamland? How did I get here? Somehow, the two slaves have slipped away, leaving behind a passportless spy standing on the blue-white road in his New England snow boots and storm coat. The vibration in my ears is no longer their receding bells, but only my old blood singing. All is still, spellbound, enthralled by the moon, fancy's rearview mirror. The snow is real, though, and as I bend to it and scoop up a handful, 60 years crumble to glittering frost dust between my fingers.
I'm Stacy Schiff, and I'm going to speak briefly about Lolita, which made its first trip to New York at the end of 1953, when Vera carried the manuscript to an editor's doorstep under a veil of secrecy. The bundle bore no return address. She had already warned that the author's name would not be attached to the manuscript. What she thought of that text is perfectly clear. To her mind, the novel was a work of genius, although she was fully aware of the danger of her husband publishing it and the public misreading it. She presented that matter firmly to Vladimir's sister, to whom Lolita was sent much later. In any case, Vera warned, don't judge the book until you've read it all the way through. It's not pornography at all, but an incredible, most subtle probe to the depths of a horrible maniac and explores the tragic fate of a defenseless young girl. Weeks later, having heard nothing, she wrote again, Vladimir is afraid that Lolita has stunned you and that's why you're silent. Don't judge it until you reach the end. It's frightening, but it is a great book. And her next breath, she added, and hide it from your son. <laughs> she had already once warned that Lolita was not a book for children. Her sister-in-law was not to leave it lying around. The first publisher to read the novel did not think Lolita even a book for adults, at least not for adults unwilling to serve jail sentences. Vikings Patkovici advised strongly against publishing the novel. He felt that bringing it out anonymously was in particular an invitation for a court case. He was seconded in his thinking by Simon & Schuster, New Directions, Ferrer, Strauss, and Doubleday, although the novel was not entirely without admirers. At Doubleday, Jason Epstein recommended against publication, but at the same time noted that Nabokov had essentially written Swan's way as if he had been James Joyce. <laughs> None of these first five publishers appears in any shape or form to have suggested Nabokov transform Lolita into a boy or Humbert into a farmer, as the author later claimed. <laughs> but none of them offered to publish the thing either. Only in mid-August 1958 did Putnam's bravely do so. Six weeks later, the novel sat at the top of the bestseller list with 80,000 copies in print. More meaningfully from Vera's point of view, Lolita was the first real piece of literature on the list since Thornton Wilder's Bridge of San Luis Rey, which she thought a moderately good book. Full-page ads ran everywhere, as did reviews, most of them hailing the work as a virtuoso performance, others pronouncing it repulsive and corrupt. At the Times, where Nabokov was one for two, Orville Prescott lambasted the book as repellent highbrow pornography, a claim that did nothing to impede sales. <laughs> Instantly, Lolita made her way into the American vernacular. Vera was particularly delighted by the Times Book Reviews cartoon. Workman inside a manhole, absorbed in a book, tells a passerby who appears to be pleading with him, no, 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 get your own copy of Lolita. <laughs> the couple played a good deal of what Nabokov termed network roulette that fall, or did as much as they were able to in Ithaca. They were frustrated that their television reception was not better. Immediately, Lolita turned up on the Arthur Godfrey show. Dean Martin claimed that he had nothing to do in Las Vegas because he did not gamble, so he sat in his hotel lobby reading children's books, Pollyanna, The Bobsy Twins, Lolita. 
Steve Allen caused the most excitement in the Nabokov household when a doll girl turned up in a long skit. Concluded Allen, we should send this doll to Mr. Nabokov. In their Ithaca living room, the Nabokovs could hardly believe their ears. Milton Berle opened his first show of 1959 with, first of all, let me congratulate Lolita. She is 13 now. <laughs> he kept up the patter, outlining a novel called Lolita Strikes Back, the story of an 84-year-old woman who falls in love with a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> well into the new year. But then, but then there was Dr. Zhivago. Pasternak's novel was published a month after Lolita. In October, its author claimed his Nobel Prize. Over the next year, the compatriots' books were locked in mortal combat at the top of the bestseller list. Lolita was in the number one position when Zhivago appeared. Within six weeks, the interloper had overtaken her. The success of a book Vera considered aggressively second-rate only proved that one could not expect too much from the world. Vladimir denounced Zhivago as well, a reading his friends thought was based on a hurried translation. Nabokov agreed that the translation should be distinguished from the novel. It's a good translation, he announced. It's the book that's bad. <laughs> Vera thought little of the work for different reasons. She felt the communists had won the volume its Nobel by pretending that it had been smuggled out of the Soviet Union, something she did not for a minute believe. She remained always doctrinaire in her literary standards. If you were a fine writer and your politics were lousy or questionable, you were a bad writer. If you were a less fine writer and your politics were laudatory, you were still a bad writer. In light of the winter bestseller lists, the couple's dismissal of Zhivago looked like sour grapes. Bitterly, Vera observed that while Lolita was still on the list, she was in danger of being squeezed out by that pitiful and miserable book by the lowly Pasternak, whom Vladimir is reluctant to badmouth so as not to be misunderstood. There was every indication he was already misunderstood. That week, Edmund Wilson complained that Vladimir was behaving rather badly about Pasternak. I have talked to him on the telephone three times lately about other matters, and he did nothing but rave about how awful Zhivago is. He wants to be the only Russian novelist in existence. It amuses me to see Zhivago just behind Lolita on the bestseller list. And I am wondering whether, as they say about horse races, Pasternak may not nose her out. Flet Nabokov could not help himself except to condemn more generously, as he edified one reporter, compared to Pasternak, Mr. Steinbeck is a genius. In, in September 1959, as Lolita headed into her second year on the list, Nabokov submitted his Cornell resignation. The news made its way into the national papers. The following day, from a cluttered hotel desk on Riverside Drive, Vera sighed with what sounds like qualified relief. What the future holds and how everything will settle, we can only guess. Alfred Appel, Jr. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
and it's nice to be back on the stage of Town Hall. This is my second appearance. I was here Christmas 1948. <laughs> it's true, with Billie Holiday. Uh, I was in the overflow crowd, actually 20, 30 people seated right here. And Billie Holiday entered stage right. And to begin on a note of jazz and popular culture is, is quite appropriate. Nabokov loved to tell uh, people, journalists, that he shared his April 23rd birthday with Shakespeare and Shirley Temple. <laughs> Twin peaks of the kind of knowledge which are best conflated in a novel such as Lolita. But I would rather point out that Nabokov shares his year of birth 1899 with Fred Astaire and Duke Ellington. And the three of them are similar in the sense that with extraordinary suddenness, their work can bring us joy, pleasure or joy with the next turn or turn of phrase or step. And uh, consistent with, with uh, that quotient, uh, journalists often ask me, what was Nabokov really like? Which means, was he less or more arrogant than the, than the persona they saw in television interviews, the imperial self uh, of the prefaces or the translated books? I invariably render them speechless by saying he was the most fun to be with of anyone I've ever known. He was like your best pal in fourth grade. You know the one, if, if you had a, a strict school marmish teacher uh, as ample as, say, Mademoiselle O, and she was writing with chalk on the board and all of her was jiggling, and your eyes met and you would burst out laughing, and then you'd be sent to the principal, and the principal would warn you that this was going on your permanent record. <laughs> I think people of a certain age remember that threat always we were always being threatened with the permanent record. <laughs> which is why Nabokov never got the Nobel Prize. <laughs> well, that's an ambitious person. I have no regrets. <laughs> examples. It was always an adventure. It was always fun with Nabokov. Uh, two quick examples of, of what I mean. When we went to see him, we used to see him annually in the late 60s and 1970s. I went to see him in July 1970, and he was very anxious, as soon as I saw him, to know what had happened at my campus, uh, Evanston, Illinois Northwestern, where I teach, uh, because if some of the younger people need to be told this. Uh, that was the Cambodian spring of 1970, when many American campuses were immobilized by student strikes, the Kent State uh, killing of, of four students, ROTC buildings were torched. Some professors physically had a fight with students who wanted to take over their classrooms. And the book of wanted to know what had happened uh, at my campus and what had happened to me. And I said, well, it was quite peaceful. I said I had only two uh, verbal altercations. One uh, of my students rushed up to me in the cafeteria and told me I was a eunuch.
Nabokov immediately said, this is an example of, of how he's always ready for fun, Nabokov immediately said, no, no, Alfred, you misunderstood me, he said, you are unique. And then I said, and I had one other incident in a very large lecture class, a nun came up to me after class. She'd been sitting way in the back, and she complained to me in, in slang I hadn't heard since my early youth that a couple near her had been spooning. You know, making out, or as teenagers say today, sucking face. And Nabokov eagerly, his eyes glinting, said, what did you say to her, what did you say to her? And I said with considerable smugness, because I thought my repost had been very witty, I said, sister, be glad that in these difficult times that's all they were doing. <laughs> and he clapped his hand to his head with considerable force and mock anguish and said, oh, Alfred, you missed your chance. You, you should have said, sister, be glad they were not forking. You'd be surprised, but my sophomores find that amusing, too. <laughs> now, Nabokov's, the high spirits Nabokov showed in the 1970s in Montreux were not because of the flush times. People who knew him in the 1930s said he had that ebullience uh, even then. Yeats might have been thinking about Nabokov in his poem of 1939, written on the eve of the war, Lapis Lazuli, when he said, they know that Hamlet and Lear are gay, gaiety, transfiguring all that dread, unquote. I'm emphasizing the book as quotient for fun because his rare, if not unique, achievement owes something to that. That achievement is that, like the author of Paradise Lost, Nabokov published his best books after the age of 50. How did he do this in the face of the history we all know about and the neglect? Genius is not enough, as some of us are learning. Three or four forces made it possible. One, that gaiety, a gift, an accident of temperament. Two, character and determination, an ethical achievement. And three, his marriage to Vera, a wise career move. <laughs> but if character is genetic, certainly his father, Vladimir Dmitrievich Nabokov, had something to do with it. As is well known, his father was a great man on several counts as a, as a jurist, a journalist, a politician in the Duma, uh, in Kerensky's provisional government, a man some said uh, might have been a prime minister if Russia had opted for a democratic government. But alas, as is also well known, in 1922 in Berlin at the age of 52, Vladimir Dmitrievich was murdered saving another man's life, the speaker, when he got in the way of monarchist assassins. In death, Vladimir Dmitrievich became a hero of the Russian liberal class. He remained a hero, always a living presence to his son, an exemplar, a touchstone of honorable behavior. And this, this points to Nabokov's last major project, his last major project was not the unfinished uh, origins of, of Laura, a novel that he got about 100 pages into. 
but rather it was the complete retranslation of, of the French version of Ada. And Mr. Scammell spoke about how at the age of 16 the book of said he was farming out the translations because he had so much of his own writing to do. Well, at the age of 75, when we visited him for the last time, 1974 in, in Zermatt, he was very busy completely redoing Ada in French. Uh, they could have and should have refused the translation as totally unacceptable and, and uh, the, the French publisher could have gotten someone else to do it. But the man who did it had received a considerable financial advance and was in very, very frail health. Uh, and if he had to return, uh, if the advance had to be returned to the publisher, it would have been a disaster. Nabokov, we were at lunch in, in July 74 with Nabokov, and the subject came up. We couldn't stay long at lunch because he had to get back to the retranslation, not revision, but he was redoing the whole thing. It took his main energies, I think, in 1974 and, and 75, and then uh, 76 and 7, his, of course, his health failed. And uh, I said that was too bad, that he ought to just divest himself of that responsibility and send it back to the publisher, and that was their responsibility uh, to get it uh, translated. And Vera kind of leaped into the breach and said, yes, that's what I've been trying to tell him. You tell him now, maybe he'll listen to you. So I tried to convince him uh, uh, succinctly, uh, if not ponderously, how he owed it to us, all of us, uh, to give us this next novel. And he stiffened and he said, no, he says, I have to do it. Uh, if it's returned, it will ruin him. It will completely ruin him. I will not do that. And he shifted in his chair and looked off into space in the other direction, uh, and, and uh, the issue was dead. And Vera kind of looked at me, raised, raised her brow like, is there anything else anyone can say? And I simply said, he's his father's son. And she nodded. She didn't say anything, but yes. He was his father's son in regard to his lectures. Not everyone who could be a writer in residence devotes so much time to such careful preparation for lectures as opposed to seminars or, or reading student uh, manuscripts. No, Bokov wouldn't be a writer in residence, but it was his civic duty to prepare the best lectures he could, which influenced uh, a great many students, uh, people who become distinguished uh, uh, jurists, uh, uh, and, and doctors who learned uh, of the value of precision, not from the specialists in their field, but they told me from Nabokov first. But Nabokov, he was not his father's son when it came to clear, effortless, spontaneous expression. Many of you know that when he did lectures or appeared on television, he insisted on getting the questions first written out, and then he would write out the answers himself. He was convinced he was a very poor, spontaneous speaker. Well, in 1971, I went to uh, interview him for a literary journal, and I fooled him. I took very careful notes surreptitiously uh, during the afternoon, then polished them up into a question and answer form for about, about two pages worth, and, brought to, and showed them after dinner uh, as, as being finished, uh, I thought, quite, quite acceptable. And, and he thought they were too. He was absolutely astonished. Uh, to see uh, their fluency. He, he couldn't understand it, and, then, and he kind of stammered. He said, it, it must be psychological. He said, it must be psychological. I'm comparing myself with my father. And then, in a, in a kind of spoken reverie, he said, oh, 
what an eloquent speaker he was. Paragraph after paragraph, and it's just a marvelous uh, coincidence that his mother and father are on the screen here. Paragraph after paragraph <laughs> poured out of him effortlessly. And as a boy, I would watch him write. I remember, and then Nabokov, uh, Nabokov's memory choreographed his hand uh, as he repeated uh, uh, his, his, his memory of his father writing. He said, he said, line after line, paragraph after paragraph, flawless. his pen moved flawlessly. He never hesitated. He never corrected himself. He never crossed out anything stupendous, unquote. And then in a tone I'd never heard before from him, he said, a tone throbbing with unsettled grief, 50 years after his father's death, he said, he was cheated. He was cheated of his chance to lead, unquote. The verb, of course, was to lead, not to rule. I think it's fair to say that Vladimir Vladimirovich, in his field, realized his father's destiny and with the honor his father would have admired as much as the prose. I'm Joyce Carol Oates of Princeton University. I'm honored to be part of this distinguished gathering, such a festive occasion. A long time ago when Lolita was first written, I was about the same age as Lolita, but I have to confess I was nothing like Lolita. <laughs> In case any of you are wondering. <laughs> it was my thought preparing for this evening what more appropriate tribute to the genius of Nebuchadnezzar than to read one of his short stories. Not a dazzling, difficult story in which the author's virtuoso voice is the prime element, but a more subdued, elegiac tale of parental grief. In its way, this story, too, is difficult. It is the work of a virtuoso. Yet its depiction of a stark domestic tragedy in no way romanticized or melodramatized, suggests artistry of the highest quality. This is my favorite among Nebuchadnezzar's stories. Since it's a little too long to read in its entirety, in the brief space we're allotted, I thought I would present the story to you, reading portions and summarizing a little, then reading the, the final third part, which is, is very powerful. It's a subtle story, it has a subtle ending, so I hope it will come across. My theory is that a portion of Nebuchadnezzar is better than none, and my hope is that you will immediately read or reread this story tomorrow. Signs and Symbols was written in English, originally published in the New Yorker, which seems appropriate, and collected in Nebuchadnezzar's dozen in 1958. It's in three parts. Signs and Symbols, one. For the fourth time in as many years, they were confronted with the problem of what birthday present 
to bring a young man who was incurably deranged in his mind. He had no desires. Man-made objects were to him either hives of evil, vibrant with a malignant activity that he alone could perceive, or gross comforts for which no use could be found in his abstract world. After eliminating a number of articles that might offend him or frighten him, anything in the gadget line, for instance, was taboo. His parents chose a dainty and innocent trifle, a basket with 10 different fruit jellies and 10 little jars. At the time of his birth, they had been married already for a long time. A score of years had, had elapsed, and now they were quite old. Her drab gray hair was done anyhow. She wore cheap black dresses. Unlike other women of her age, she presented a naked white countenance to the fault-finding light of spring days. Her husband, who in the old country had been a fairly successful businessman, was now wholly dependent on his brother Isaac, a real American of almost 40 years standing. They seldom saw him and had nicknamed him the Prince. That Friday, everything went wrong. They go by subway and it breaks down. They get on a bus and it's not a very pleasant atmosphere. It was raining hard as they walked up the brown path leading to the sanitarium. There they waited again, and instead of their boy shuffling into the room as he usually did, his poor face blotched with acne, ill-shaven, sullen, and confused, a nurse they knew and did not care for appeared at last and brightly explained that he had again attempted to take his life. He was all right, she said, but a visit might disturb him. The place was so miserably understaffed and things got mislaid or mixed up so easily that they decided not to leave their present in the office but to bring it to him next time they came. The last time he had tried to do it, his method had been, in the doctor's words, a masterpiece of inventiveness. He would have succeeded had not an envious fellow patient thought he was learning to fly and stopped him. What he really wanted to do was tear a hole in his world and escape. The system of his delusions had been the subject of an elaborate paper in the Scientific Monthly, but long before that, she and her husband had puzzled it out for themselves. Referential mania, Herman Brink had called it. In these very rare cases, the patient imagines that everything happening around him is a veiled reference to his personality and existence. He ex excludes real people from the conspiracy because he considers himself to be so much more intelligent than other men. Phenomenal nature shadows him wherever he goes. Clouds in the staring skies transmit to one another by means of slow signs, incredibly detailed information regarding him. His inmost thoughts are discussed at nightfall in manual alphabet by darkly gesticulating trees. Pebbles or stains or sunflecks form patterns representing in some awful way messages which he must intercept. Everything is a cipher and of everything he is the theme. Some of the spies are detached observers such as glass surfaces and still pools. Others, such as coats and store windows, are prejudiced witnesses, lynchers at heart. Others, again, running water, storms, 
are hysterical to the point of insanity, have a distorted opinion of him, and grotesquely misinterpret his actions. He must always be on his guard and devote every minute and module of life to the decoding of the undulation of things. Two, when they emerged from the thunder and foul air of the subway, the last dregs of the day were mixed with the streetlights. They entered their two-room flat, and he at once went to the mirror, straightening the corners of his mouth apart by means of his thumbs with a horrible mask-like grimace. He removed his new, hopelessly uncomfortable dental plate and severed the long tusks of saliva connecting him to it. He read his Russian-language newspaper while she laid the table. Still reading, he ate the pale victuals that needed no teeth. She knew his moods and was also silent. When he had gone to bed, she remained in the living room with her pack of soiled cards and her old albums. Across the narrow yard where the rain tinkled in the dark against some battered ash cans, windows were blandly alight, and in one of them a black-trousered man with his bare elbows raised and could be seen lying on an untidy bed. She pulled the blind down and examined the photographs. As a baby, he looked more surprised than most babies. And she's looking through these various photographs. Four years old in a park, moodily, shyly, with a puckered forehead, looking away from an eager squirrel. Age six, that was when he drew wonderful birds with human hands and feet and suffered from insomnia like a grown-up man. He again, aged about eight, already difficult to understand, afraid of the wallpaper in the passage, afraid of a certain picture in a book, which merely showed an idyllic landscape with rocks on a hillside. Age 10, the year they left Europe, the shame, the pity, the humiliating difficulties, the ugly, vicious, backward children he was with in that special school. And then came a time in his life coinciding with a long convalescence after pneumonia, when these little phobias of his, which his parents had stubbornly regarded as the eccentricities of a gifted child, hardened, as it were, into a dense tangle of logically interacting illusions, making him totally inaccessible to normal minds. This and much more she accepted, for after all, living did mean accepting the loss of one joy after another. Three. It was past midnight when from the living room she heard her husband moan, and presently he staggered in, wearing over his nightgown the old overcoat, which he much preferred to the nice blue bathrobe he had. I can't sleep, he cried. Why, she asked, why can't you sleep? You are so tired. I can't sleep because I am dying, he said, and lay down on the couch. Is it your stomach? Do you want me to call the doctor? No doctors, no doctors, he moaned. The devil with doctors. We must get him out of there quick. Otherwise, we'll be responsible. Responsible, he repeated, and hurled himself into a sitting position, both feet on the floor, thumping his forehead with his fist. All right, she said quietly. We shall bring him home tomorrow morning. I would like some tea, said her husband, and retired to the bathroom. He returned then in high spirits, saying in a loud voice, I have it all figured out. We will give him the bedroom, 
Each of us will spend part of the night near him and the other part on this couch by turns. We will have the doctor see him at least twice a week. The telephone rang. It was such an unusual hour for the telephone to ring. His left slipper had come off. He groped for it with his heel and toe as he stood in the middle of the room and childishly, toothlessly gaped at his wife. Having more English than he did, it was she who attended to calls. Can I speak to Charlie, said a girl's dull little voice. What number do you want? No, this is not the right number. The receiver was gently cradled. Her hand went to her old, tired heart. It frightened me, she said. He smiled a quick smile and immediately resumed his excited monologue. They would fetch him as soon as it was day. Knives would have to be kept away in a locked drawer. Even at his worst, he presented no danger to other people. The telephone rang a second time. The same toneless, anxious young voice asked for Charlie. You have the incorrect number. I will tell you what you are doing. You are turning the letter O instead of zero. They sat down to the unexpected festive midnight tea. The birthday present stood on the table. He sipped noisily. His face was flushed. Every now and then, he imparted a circular motion to his raised glass. The vein on the side of his bald head, where there was a large birthmark, stood out conspicuously. And though he had shaved that morning, a silvery bristle showed on his chin. While she poured him another glass of tea, he put on his spectacles and re-examined with pleasure the luminous yellow, green, red little jars. His clumsy, moist lips spelled out their eloquent labels, apricot, grape, beech plum, quince. He had got to crab apple when the telephone rang again. Thank you. Good evening, I'm Brian Boyd. In a famous passage of Speak Memory, Nabokov describes a chess problem he composed where the relationship between composer and solver serves as an analogy for the relationship between author and reader that he aims for in his fiction. An immediate pleasure for the naive solver, the thesis of the problem, in the Hegelian terms that Nabokov invokes. The pleasurable torments awaiting the would-be sophisticated solver who realizes there's more to the problem, the antithesis, and the rush of surprise and delight awaiting the super sophisticated solver who reaches the problem's deepest solution, the synthesis. Writing my biography of Nabokov, I didn't discover in time an incident that I think offers a similar kind of analogy to his literary work, but in terms of butterflies, not chess. Here, free of charge, is a sneak preview of The American Years, a biography revisited. <laughs> in 1943, 
a biology student named John Downey, was working in a summer vacation in the mountains of Utah. Driving a coal truck one day up the steep Cottonwood Canyon, he found he had to stop every so often to let the engine cool down. After pulling over at a bend and opening the truck's hood, he noticed a man in shorts and sneakers and no shirt coming down the road with a net in his hand. As the man passed, Downey called out, Hello, what you doing? Collecting insects. The man gave a sharp glance at this stranger covered in coal dust, said nothing, and continued down the road at the same brisk pace. Downey fell in behind him. I'm a collector too. This got a millisecond glance and one raised eyebrow as he strolled along. I collect butterflies. This rated another raised eyebrow, if not a slight nod of the head, but still no sound nor slowing of the pace. Finally, Downey recalls, a nymphalid butterfly flitted across the road. What's that? He asked. I gave him the scientific name as best as I could remember. His pace didn't slacken, but an eyebrow stayed higher a little longer this time. <laughs> Yet another butterfly crossed the road. What's that? Says he. I gave him a name, a little less sure of myself, particularly since he had not confirmed the correctness of my first identification. <laughs> hmm, was his only response. A third test specimen crossed his vision and, what's that? I gave him my best idea and to my surprise, he stopped, put out his arm and said, hello, I'm Vladimir Nabokov. During the 1940s, while on a research fellowship at Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology, Nabokov made himself the authority on American blue butterflies. After completing his major monograph and no longer needing the stack of index cards he had assembled on the blues, he sent them on to Downey. In fact, his kindness helped Downey settle on his field of specialization. Downey became the American authority on the blues in the generation after Nabokov, and his student, Kurt Johnson, who's here tonight, has now become the American authority on the blues for a third generation. And with colleagues in three other countries, on three other continents, especially Jolt Barlint of Hungary, who's also here, he honors Nabokov's pioneer work on the Latin American blues by naming newly discovered species after his fiction. So now there are butterflies called Humbert and Lolita, Lusion and Pneen, Kinboat and Shade, Arda and Hazelia, and many, many more. What strikes me about Nabokov's encounter with Downey in Cottonwood Canyon is the demands he makes, the conditions he imposes on this grimy truck driver. You can walk with me, but I will test you a little. If you pass the test, I will let you see who I am, and I'll even offer you all that I've found so that you can go on to make your discoveries in turn. As much as the chess problem, the story suggests Nabokov's demanding but ultimately generous relationship to his readers, which reflects his sense of the demanding but ultimately generous world that life offers us. That seems to me the key to Nabokov. He was a maximalist, someone who appreciated as much as anyone has the riches the world offers in nature and art, in sensation, emotion, thought and language, and the surprise of these riches, 
if we animate them with all our attention and imagination. Yet at the same time, he felt that all this was not enough because he could readily imagine a far ampler freedom beyond the limits within which he feels human consciousness is trapped. He celebrates with unique precision and passion the delights of the visible and tangible world, the tenderness and force of human feelings and relationships, the treasures of memory, the pathetic pleasures of life, if you like. He planned to call his first novel Happiness, until he realized that perhaps might be just a little too unguarded. Yet Nabokov also has a deserved reputation for his acid imagination, his savage irony, his trenchant ability to deflate, to register disappointments, humiliations, and horrors. His stories offer endless evidence of the comic, ironic, tragic limitations of human life, and he never lets us forget the absurdity of the very conditions of the human mind, of the solitary confinement of the self as he defines one central aspect of his world, or of the prison of time as he defines another. At this level, Nabokov registers the antithetic torments of life and writes books entitled Not Happiness, but Laughter in the Dark or Despair. But readers who stop there and think that he stops there in modernist irony or a postmodernist abeam miss altogether his positive irony, his attempt to encompass all the negatives as he suspects life itself does and reverse their direction in the mirror of death. The search for that possibility is what makes Nabokov different and what makes him right. He believes that the fullness and the complexity of life suggests worlds within worlds within worlds, and he builds his own imagined universes to match. Although we can't see his hidden worlds at first, he allows us to find our own way to them, just as he thinks whatever lies behind life invites us to an endless adventure of discovery in and beyond life. At this synthetic level, Nabokov writes books with titles like The Gift, whose hero in turn thinks of writing a practical handbook, How to Be Happy. Examples, Nabokov says, are the stained glass windows of knowledge. I must offer at least one tiny example not a stained glass window, but something even more luminous, the opening of John Shade's poem, Pale Fire, which Elizabeth Hardwick has already read the first line of from Nabokov's most perfect novel. I was the shadow of the waxwing slain by the false azure in the window pane. I was the smudge of ashen fluff, and I lived on, flew on in the reflected sky. Within this radiant image, Nabokov epitomizes his lifelong attention to the particulars of this world and his lifelong desire to have the imagination suggest a way past the world's limits. All his life, Shade, like Nabokov, has enjoyed the things of this world and yet searched for something outside the prisons of the self and of time. Here, he projects himself into another creature as it flies, as it dies, and then as he imagines it soaring on in the blue beyond, 
which in fact it is death to meet. But behind the immediate thetic pleasure of the image, we soon find ourselves, as we reread Pale Fire, in the pleasurable torments of the antithetic phase, haunted and tantalized by the enigmatic relationship between Shade's reflected azure here and Kinboat's blue and innumerable zembla, that land of reflections. And if we peer still deeper, we can, as we re-re-read, reach the exhilarating discoveries of the synthetic level, as we gradually detect a dozen concealed patterns linking this opening couplet to the rest of the novel, each pattern with its own far-reaching implications, implications that have nothing at all to do with what I wrongly proposed in the biography that Shade invents Kinboat, and that I planned to tease out this evening until I realized it would take half an hour even in rapid summary. Let me just say instead that like life, Nabokov's art dazzles on the surface, but like life, he also hides far more behind. Far from mocking and frustrating his audience, he allows us the chance to discover more for ourselves in his work and in our world than any other author I've ever encountered. And his generosity to his readers matches and reenacts and pays tribute to what he senses is the generosity of our world. It's a great honor to be here on VN's uh, 100th birthday. The great critic Northrop Fry wittily warned us against value judgments and league tables, against the notion of a literary stock exchange where reputations boom and crash. Milton is a greater poet than, say, Shackley Marmion. We know this to be so, yet it is not demonstrable. We can't establish the point, we can only labor it. For instance, if you take a dud line from the Senilia of Wordsworth, "'Tis he who, whose yester-evening's high disdain," for example, and compare it with a great line from his maturity, thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears, the judging critic would have to say that the second line is inferior because it contains the expletive do, which is put in just to make up the numbers of the pentameter. Uh, critics then cannot judge and must look forward to lulling themselves into a stupor of satisfaction with everything ever written. <laughs> but the reader is making literary judgments all the time. And if you want to know what your judgments are, go and look at the disposition of your bookshelves. The other day I had to uh, cause to replace the collected verse of the Australian poet Peter Porter. And in he went between Pope and Pushkin, which told me what I thought of Ezra Pound, because <laughs> he wasn't there. Vladimir Nabokov, and I languidly English the name, um, ticks up a good five feet of my library, um, a fiefdom exceeded only by Shakespeare. But the Nabokov section is dilapidated like a wall with missing bricks, 
because the books are in constant use and they're all over the house. The great man was famously scathing about the writers of his own century, those frauds, brutes, clowns, quacks, and dunces. Such was his declamatory style. And only once, I think, did he bow to a superior talent. Of James Joyce, he said, my stuff is patball to his champion game. Now, how sincere was Nabokov being? <laughs> In my view, the bidding starts at 50% and then drops sharply. <laughs> anyway, it's a judgment he whittled away at elsewhere. That 600-page crossword clue, Finnegan's Wake, Nabokov considered a tragic failure, quote, a cold pudding of a book, a persistent snore in the next room. <laughs> and a portrait of the artist he found feeble and garrulous. As far as I know, he never pronounced on Dubliners as a whole, but Brian Boyd tells me that he did mark up a short story anthology he was sent, often giving Z or Z minuses to writers with hemispherical reputations, like Lawrence, and he did give Joyce an A plus for the dead. But on the whole, I imagine he would have found those early stories slightly jejune. Jejune, a much misused word that has nothing to do with youth or naivety. It means fast-like, scanty, Lenten, vow of poverty prose, inimical to Nabokov's spirit of stupendous largesse. For him then, and pretty much for me, that leaves Ulysses, which is clearly the century's key text. It is impossible to cite or imagine any other novel apart from Don Quixote, capable of giving the form of fiction such a violent evolutionary jilt. Now let us return to the Nabokov section of the library and to the metaphor of the champion game. And we see that while Joyce was blessed with exquisite touch, with sumptuous feel, the drop shot that drops dead on the clay, what he lacked was any interest in his opponent. Nabokov, on the other hand, got the job done. Just look at the Russians' great thicket of grand slams, and here I mention only those books that mean most to this writer-reader. Lolita, very closely followed by Despair, King Queen Knave, Pnin, Laughter in the Dark, Pale Fire, Transparent Things, The Eye, Nabokov's Dozen, Speak, Memory. What inhibited Joyce was perhaps introversion, a failure of love for the reader. John Updike is surely right when he says that Nabokov is essentially an amorous style. It longs to clasp diaphanous reality in its hairy arms. <laughs> but Nabokov wants to embrace his readers too. You know, he comes across as the snorting wizard of hauteur, but, um, but he is the dream host, uh, always giving us on our visits his best chair, and his best wine. Uh, what would Joyce do, let's think? He would call out vaguely from the kitchen. <laughs> asking you to wait a couple of hours for the final fermentation of a home-brewed punch. <laughs> made out of grenadine, conger eels, and sheep dip. This is from Pnin, after our endearing hero has had a desolate tryst with his vile and beloved ex-wife. 
to hold her, to keep her just as she was, with her cruelty, her vulgarity, with her blinding blue eyes, with her miserable poetry, with her fat feet, with her impure, dry, sordid, infantile soul. All of a sudden he thought, if people are reunited in heaven, I don't believe it, but suppose, then how shall I stop it from creeping upon me, over me, that shriveled, helpless, lame thing, her soul? And this is a bit more of Mademoiselle O from Speak Memory. She had spent all her life in feeling miserable. This misery was her native element. Its fluctuations, its varying depths, alone gave her the impression of moving and living. What bothers me is that a sense of misery and nothing else is not enough to make a permanent soul. My enormous and morose mademoiselle is all right on earth, but impossible in eternity. Nabokov, my novelist of the century, is possible, indeed inevitable, in eternity. This is from an essay called The Art of Literature and Common Sense, in which common sense is the villain of the piece. Quote, that human life is but a first installment of the serial soul, becomes something more than an optimistic conjecture when we remember that only common sense rules immortality out. True, but common sense also rules immortality in. Writers live on in the love and gratitude of their readers, and Vladimir Nabokov is here tonight because our hearts are brimming with him. Thank you very much. Good evening. Uh, since I'm the only one left, I must be Dmitry Nabokov. <laughs> However, a slightly diminished version thereof by a misstep at a bus stop at a German airport and a severe bronchitis. However, my father, uh, my father and I are deeply uh, touched by everyone who has uh, put their heart into making this evening possible. To be delivered at the end of a college course, l'envoi. To some it may seem that under the uh, present highly irritating uh, world conditions, it is rather a waste of energy to study literature, and especially to study structure and style. I suggest that uh, to a certain type of temperament, and we all have uh, different temperaments, the study of style may always seem a waste of energy under any circumstances. But apart from this, it seems to me that in every mind, be it inclined towards the artistic or the practical, there is always a perceptive cell, a receptive cell, for things that transcend the awful troubles of everyday uh, life. What I teach you when I teach you to read books for the sake of their form, their visions, their art, I have tried to teach you to feel a shiver of artistic satisfaction, 
to share not the emotions of the people in the book, but the emotions of its author, the joys and difficulties of creation. We did not talk around books, about books. We went to the center of this or that masterpiece, to the live heart of the matter. Now the course comes to a close. The work with this group has been a particularly pleasant association between the fountain of my voice and a garden of ears. Some open, others closed. Some very receptive, a few merely ornamental. <laughs> but all of them human and divine. Some of you will go on reading great books. Others will stop reading great books after graduation. And if a person thinks he cannot evolve the capacity of pleasure in reading the great artists, then he should not read them at all. After all, there are other thrills in other domains. The thrill of pure science is just as pleasurable as the pleasure of pure art. The main thing is to experience that uh, tingle in any department of thought or emotion. The main thing is to experience that tingle that we are liable to miss, and with it to miss the best of life if we do not know how to tingle, if we do not learn to hoist ourselves a little higher than we generally are in order to sample the rarest and ripest fruit of art which human thought has to offer. Here, I shall interrupt myself briefly to make an award. Uh, this year's uh, Nabokov Booby Prize uh, goes to Ottawa parliamentarian Inky Marx, former English teacher who did not know of the existence of Lolita until he heard it was present in the parliamentary library. Whereupon, not having read it, he demanded its removal. <laughs> However, his staff intervened with a wry smile, made a collection of funds, and gave him a copy so that he could at least read it. <laughs> that prize is shared this year with some uh, antipodian antediluvians who would uh, bar and ban forever Adrian Lyne's excellent film of Lolita. These uh, gentlemen join uh, ecclesiastical journalist Audie and our own Senator Hatch <laughs> in the pantheon of prigs. Now I shall speak of a slightly more serious prize, but in very vague terms for now. Uh, with the patronage of the Penn Club, I'm founding the Penn Club uh, Nabokov Literary Prize, which will be awarded according to mysterious criteria <laughs> to be announced in the not too distant future. Now, since this uh, evening is a tribute 
to my mother as well as to my father, thanks in large part to uh, Stacy Schiff's superb book, which has just come out and done for my mother what Brian Boyd did for my father, in a sense. Uh, this would be the most appropriate present and would have given my father great joy. So I shall say a word about her. On the eve of a risky hip operation, late in life, my brave and considerate mother asks that I bring her favorite blue dress because she might be receiving someone. I had the eerie feeling that she wanted that dress for a very different reason. It was mother's wish that her ashes be united those of her husband in the urn at the Clarence Cemetery. In a curiously Bokovian twist of things, a pair of Shakespearean grave diggers could not find the urn. My instinct was to call mother and ask her what to do about it, but there was no mother to ask. I miss most perhaps uh, her nightly kiss and my accident burned little finger, uh, her nightly warning to drive or jog carefully, even if I were traveling 300 meters, <clears throat> and her desire for a phone call to reassure her that I was safe at bedtime, whether it was in Montreux or in Venezuela. I shall miss her love and tenderness for the natural kingdom and the artistic one, and wish she could comment on my style even as I speak now. I shall remember when I told her a pelican had made its way up to the 26th floor of a Florida tower. She said, that's a big effort for a pelican. <laughs> I shall remember too with what joy she read the great poets, even Dante and Leopardi, who wrote in a language she had not been trained in. In the evenings we spent reading to each other, Pushkin or Lermontov or Nabokov. I shall treasure the love she instilled in me for the great painters. I shall sorely miss her encyclopedic precision and splendid taste. I wish only that I had gleaned more knowledge from her. Vera Nabokov always, was always reserved and modest about her invaluable literary contributions. But even in her 80s, she helped with the preparation of many editions of her husband's works, wrote an introduction for a Russian edition of his poems, assisted in the compilation of a collection of his letters, dedicated immense effort to the Russian translation of Pale Fire, and checked my own modest attempt at a first novel with a mother motherly but uh, most objective eye. It is fortuitous but uh, appropriate that some original research of hers in connection with Pushkin's Queen of Spades uh, has been published by Ardis in America in a final Nabokovian issue of the Russian Literary Triquarterly. The saddest events seem to come on the most beautiful days of the year. And it was almost as if mother had held on tenaciously until the final day, until I was to return from America and I was delayed. But when after the dreaded phone call, I rushed back to spend mother's last day with her. I was sure that even though she was no longer strong enough to speak, 
She knew I was holding her hand and stroking her hair and that, as uh, her faithful companion, Madame Landy, put it, she expired gently like a candle that has burned out. While her material incarnation has now been reduced to ashes, I am kept buoyant by an optimism that father, mother, and I have long shared. Although we did not participate in any formal religious uh, denomination, we have always known that things do not all end here. It would be such a waste that pity and beauty do not really die, and that one day we shall be rejoined. It is sad to lose a loved one, but good to be loved. My love and thanks go to all those who have shown their affection by coming here today. A few of you have said some words, but there is one other whom I now shall quote. The years are passing, my dear, and presently nobody will know what you and I know. Our child is growing. The roses of pestum, of misty pestum, are gone. Mechanically-minded idiots are tinkering and tampering with the forces of nature that mild mathematicians, to their own secret surprise, appear to have foreshadowed. So perhaps it is time we examined ancient snapshots, cave drawings of trains and planes, strata of toys in the lumbered closet, and the sorrow of interrupted life is nothing compared to the sorrow of interrupted study. The probability that the former may continue beyond the grave seems infinite when compared to the inexorable incompletion of the latter. There, perhaps, it will seem like nonsense, but here it still remains unfinished. Whatever may lie in store for the soul, however fully earthly mishaps may be resolved, there may, must remain a faint hum, vague as stardust, even if its source vanishes with the earth. That is why I cannot forgive the censorship of death, the prison officials of the other world. And finally, good God, in this eerie, alien world, letters of life and whole lines have been transposed by the typesetters. Let's fold our wings, my lofty angel. <laughs>